don't know if you've ever met somebody who lived by the mantra of the old Toys R Us theme song. How many of you think you remember the Toys R Us theme song? Yeah. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. There's a million toys at Toys R Us that I can play with, from bikes to trains to video games. It's the biggest toy store there was. I want to grow up, but if I did, I wouldn't be a Toys R Us, wouldn't be a Toys R Us kid, right? Yeah, like you know, like some of you know it. You could, you maybe didn't think you knew it, but you probably did know it. Um, but if you've ever met somebody who kind of like that seemed to be like the "I'm never gonna grow up" kind of mantra for their life, um, they just like they looked like adults, didn't act like adults. Um, you know, seemed to be allergic to responsibility. Never learned to do anything more than chase out pleasure and fun. Um, and whoever it is, when you see someone acting younger than their age, that's typically a little bit of a red flag, at least to me, that something is off. Um, because one thing we all know and we all recognize about life is that growth is something that's supposed to happen. Like maturity is kind of a natural part of life, right? And so when something that's alive doesn't grow and doesn't mature, that kind of is a red flag that something's off, right? That's an indicator something's not the way that it should be. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, healthy living things grow. Healthy living things mature. Um, but here's the tricky part about maturity is that even though it's supposed to be natural, it's not automatic. It's not something that just automatically happens to you, and it doesn't automatically happen to everyone. Um, I've heard more dirty jokes from old men than junior high boys in my life, right? Um, I've seen adults in their 60s and their 30 or 40-year-old kids have to come alongside them and try to give them parenting advice because they just never figured it out. They never grew up anywhere along the way. Growing in maturity is not automatic. It doesn't happen on its own. You can grow old without ever growing up. It's an interesting, fascinating thing. And this especially applies to following Jesus. You can be a Christian for decades and decades and never really experience significant transformation. Never really experience significant change to who you are. You never become more and more like Jesus as time goes by. Spiritual maturity is not automatic. You can be baptized. You can come to church occasionally. You can post Christian things on social media and never experience the amazing life-changing transformation that we were meant to experience as we follow Jesus. The parts of you that are undesirable, the selfish, sinful parts of you, do not just magically float away. A bitter, greedy heart does not naturally go away. Lust does not vanish on its own. Wisdom is not just going to naturally show up on your doorstep. And patience is not going to magically grow in your heart over time. But again, growth, meant to be natural, not automatic. Jesus intends for us, though, to be maturing. He wants his followers to experience this change and transformation. It's supposed to be a natural part of a walk with Jesus, a natural part of this flow of life following after him. But we have to surround our lives with the right things, with the right people, with the right activities. We've got to have the right heart and attitude if we want to experience this change and transformation. He is not going to force us to change. Um, in fact, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the author of that book actually kind of like rips into some Christians for their lack of maturity, for their lack of spiritual growth. In Hebrews chapter 5, starting verse 11, 
He says, about this we have much to say. So what he's been talking about, he's like, I would like to say more to you, but it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, saying you guys have been here long enough, you should know all this stuff and be teaching it to somebody else. He's like, but even though you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk. Not solid food, which is instantly a burn. He's like, you little itty-bitty babies, like a bunch of children, grow up. Like, it's, that was immensely, like immediately supposed to be kind of a little, oh, gut punch there. He says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. That also makes me laugh, because it's like, in case you didn't get my insult, you're a child. Like, he comes back and like spells it out. Uh, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, one thing I do want to point out is that the author doesn't say that people who have to drink milk are bad. It doesn't say that being immature is wrong or bad. Everybody starts at immaturity. That's the process of life. Babies don't get born walking and talking. They've got to grow and learn those skills. The same is true of our spirituality. Nobody wakes up one day just quoting the Bible. Nobody wakes up one day reading theology books and teaching scripture. That's okay. Everybody starts out as an infant. The problem, though, is when you never grow past that. The problem is when you never move beyond the basics to deeper things. And the picture he points to us is one that's both gross and a little bit funny. Because a baby nursing, normal. An adult nursing, horrifying. Like that's kind of the image he's leading us to. That's like, oh man, something's way, way off. You've been here a while. You should move past this. And so it's okay to start at immaturity, but it's not okay to stay there. And the sad thing is, there are so many Christians who are okay to just live a stagnant spiritual life. And it, it, that's upsetting for a couple of reasons. One is because you're missing out. Maturity does bring with it a lot of benefits of life. Um, you, you'll still have, you know, the ups and downs and the pains and the difficulties and the tragedies. But what maturity does is it increases your ability to trust in God to be patient and wait on God in those painful moments. It gives you a little bit more of a, a sense of peace because you know that God is with you through thick and through thin. And so that when bad things happen, you can be a little bit more steady and it makes them a little bit more easy to deal with. The more immature you are in your faith, the harder it is going to be for you to trust God when life gets um, chaotic and painful and messy. And you're going to respond in ways that just add more chaos and pain. So it's not that there's any less painful events in life, but maturity makes weathering those things a lot easier, a lot more stable. Another reason why it's sad when Christians spend years just kind of stagnating in immaturity is that God wants you to grow, and he promised growth for you. He says, it's right here. Growth is, again, it's supposed to be a natural part of walking with Jesus. You're supposed to transform over time. Over and over again, the teaching of the New Testament is built on the assumption that those who follow Jesus grow in maturity and experience transformation. Those who were one day the student eventually become the teachers. That was a part of just built into the faith. And so if you ever get down on yourself and say, well, man, why can't I change? You can. You can change. There's a God-given 
power in you as a believer called the Holy Spirit. God living inside of you to give you strength and power and wisdom uh, to walk away from the old life of sin and to live a new life for Christ and in the image of Christ. But often the reason we don't make it past immaturity is because we have a bit of a roadblock in our way. Now, we are right smack dab in the middle of a teaching series called Life on Mission. And we are looking at the benefits of being a part of the mission of Jesus, not alone, but with other believers. The benefits that come with being a follower of Jesus with other followers of Jesus. Um, Nowhere in the New Testament do you find anybody as a Christian doing life all by themselves. We are always meant to be in a group so that we have encouragement and care and people to serve and love. And this series is all about how we can be better followers of Jesus when we kind of link arm in arm, when we stand shoulder to shoulder with other believers. Now, last week, what we started was breaking down uh, our church's mission statement, which is just our wording here at Loami Christian Church for what it means to follow Jesus and what we're called to do. Here's our mission statement. Loami Christian Church exists to connect people to Jesus, grow them in Jesus, and impact the world for Jesus. Connect, grow, and impact, and do it all for Jesus. Uh, last week, we looked at the importance of doing the work of connecting people to Jesus in a life-changing, soul-saving relationship with him. Uh, today, we're going to look at how every believer should have a lifelong desire to grow, a lifelong desire to move beyond being a tiny little bud to being a tall, mighty, unshakable tree of faith. That is how we were supposed to grow. And I think one of the biggest obstacles in your life and in my life when it comes to experiencing this growth, experiencing this transformation, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's not access to more information. We don't often need more Bible studies. We often don't need more uh, verses to memorize. Uh, Many of us have more than we can handle with that kind of stuff. In fact, some people say um, American Christians spend their lives becoming obese on teaching but we don't ever exercise the teaching. And, and so a part of the problem for us is not more information. It's not that there's some wall separating the spiritual elite from the spiritual commoner or anything like that. In fact, the biggest obstacle, I think, to most people growing in Christ is simply willingness. Willingness. Because God, as I said, is not going to force you to change. He's not going to force you to take steps in the right direction. He can surround you with the people that need to be in your life. He can give you the resources and the opportunities, but he will not force you to take the steps that you need to take to make the most of those choices, to make the most of those opportunities that are going to lead to growth. You and I must willingly follow the lead of God in our lives. We must willingly do the hard work of surrendering our will and make the hard choices to leave the old parts of our life behind, to do things uh, that we've never done before, to walk into a world and, and a way of living that might be scary and unfamiliar as we walk this new life with Christ. Um, because the thing is, though, um, when you want to move from old life to new, there's, a plenty, there's plenty of stuff that you've just got to flat out leave behind. And at each stage where where Christ is saying, okay, let's go on to something deeper. Let's go on to something more meaningful. Let's take you to another level of maturity. It's going to require leaving things behind. But as with anything worth having, maturity comes with a cost. And we must be willing to pay that cost, to leave behind what needs to be left behind so that we can follow Jesus more fully. And as we said earlier, 
You cannot just sit by doing the bare minimum of faith, you know, coming to church every once in a while, show up for a few events, pray every once in a while, crack open your Bible every once in a while. You can't do the bare minimum and expect to see radical transformation take place in your life. That's not how this works. It is not automatically going to come into your life. And people that often look like great examples of faith are people who have um, day by day been open to what God had for them. Day by day, been willing to walk into this new world that Christ has for them. They did not just wake up one day spiritually mature. No one ever wakes up thinking, wow, I really used to struggle to pray, and now I can't get enough of it. Thursday morning, woke up, pray all day, can't stop praying. Woo! That's not how that works. Nobody wakes up one morning with the ability to quote Bible passages for any situation in their life at will. That just doesn't click like that overnight. No one says, I used to be such an angry person. I always let my anger get the best of me. But man, I came to church on Sunday, never been angry since. Just gone, totally gone. That's not how this works. It's not a magical overnight transition. That is not the story that most of us are going to have with our faith. And so as we start to kind of figure out what what, what does it mean to be willing, what's in the way of us actually growing and experiencing the life that God has for us, we're going to look at a very familiar story that many of you have probably heard before. It's a story that's often in your, in your Bibles. There's a heading called The Rich Young Ruler. Um, it's in three out of the four Gospels. So we have three versions of this story in our New Testaments. We're going to look at Mark's version in Mark chapter 10. Now, if you're unfamiliar, the first four books of the New Testament are what we call Gospels. A Gospel is just a Jesus focused biography. It's a biography of the life of Jesus, written by four different perspectives. And the story that we're going to look at is one of the most perfect explanations um, between wanting to follow Jesus and being willing to do what it takes to follow Jesus, because there's a difference there. And what's interesting is all three of these versions are a little bit different. They provide little bits of information. Um, Matthew's version says that the guy, this guy was young, the guy who's kind of the main character of the story besides Jesus, says he was young. Luke tells us he was a ruler, and they all say that he was rich. So he's uh, got lots of money, he's got some level of authority over some stuff, and he's young. Probably got washboard abs, long flowing hair while we're at it. I mean, that would just make sense to cap off the story for the people that have too much goodness in their life sometimes. But let's go ahead and start Matthew, or Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he, this is talking about Jesus, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this rich young guy wants something. He wants salvation. He wants eternal life. He knows, um, he wants to know at the end of the day that I've done all the things I need to do to make sure that my eternal salvation is locked up, that I don't have to worry about what happens after I die. He wants, he wants to make sure that he has that eternal relationship with God secured. And so he probably, you know, like everybody had days where, oh, God likes me today. I didn't do such a great job. I mean, he probably had days where he worried about that kind of stuff. Um, and so he hears this prophet named Jesus is wandering around. That's what a lot of people were saying at the time. 
Um, and he thought, well, this guy could definitely answer my question. So he goes to Jesus. He gets on his knees. He's doing everything he can to grovel and bow and honor Jesus and say, good teacher. He's sucking up with titles. Good teacher. What, do I, what am I missing here? What, what's the piece to the puzzle that I'm missing here? And the story goes on in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Which that seems like a really weird response, but what Jesus is trying to do for this guy is to redirect his heart and his mind to God. Because right now he's coming in this inward focused. What can I, Jesus, how can I get what I need to get? And he's trying to start pointing his attention heavenward. So he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he goes on, he says, you know the commandments. He starts listing ten commandments here. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Because in Israel, that was the law of the land. These kids learned this stuff from birth, especially young boys. They started learning to memorize the first five books of the Bible very, very early. Like, that was kindergarten literature to them. Like, that's crazy for us, right? But that's where they started. They started memorizing the first five books of the Bible. So this guy knew the commandments, all of them. And so Jesus says, you know these commandments, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, man, this, this is what it is. I got this locked up. I've been doing all this stuff since I was a kid. I have done all of these things. I've done all the standard stuff. But he wants to know, though, did I miss anything? I just want to make sure I didn't miss something really important. And so it's obvious that this guy wants salvation. He wants what Jesus has to offer. But now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to escalate the situation by forcing this guy to a choice that will reveal to him what he wants most. Verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Here's the missing piece. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So a couple things. One, Jesus knows the guy's heart. So much of what you hear, see about Jesus and the replies he has for people, it, it, it's Jesus is doing what he's doing because he knows people's hearts better than they know their own hearts. And he knows this guy's heart. He knows that there's something that this guy loves more than him. And what Jesus is trying to do is reveal this man's heart to himself. Because one thing I think that is so common, especially for church-going people, is we know we need Jesus. We, we know that we need what he has to offer. We know that we're sinners. We're aware of that. We know that Jesus died on a cross. We know we need what he has to offer. But we are unwilling to admit that very often there's other things in life that we want more than that. That there are other things that we want more than salvation and life and relationship with Jesus. And that's the problem that Jesus himself um, makes very clear to this guy. And, and throughout the Entire New Testament, this is a problem that Jesus says is unacceptable. If we're going to follow Jesus, then he has to have the number one spot in our life. He says things like, if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to take up a cross, meaning 
There's going to be pain and death involved if you're going to follow me. Certain parts of your life have to go away. You've got to leave them behind, dead in the dirt, if you're going to follow me. And if you're going to follow me, it's everything. He tells people, um, don't even go back to bury your family. Leave it. You're coming with me. He tells people these exaggerated statements of, you have to put me first. And there's a statement where he says, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks backward is not fit for my work. Because in olden days, when you were you know, leading a, a donkey behind a plow, you know what happens if you didn't look where you were going? You know how your rows looked? Right? The donkey didn't have the GPS that makes the rows go straight, you know, like they do now. And, and like, if you weren't paying attention, if you were looking back, wondering if you did, what's, what's behind you, then you messed up what was in front of you. That was kind of the idea. Jesus says, it's all on me. All eyes on me. You're following me. I have to be first in your life. Jesus says this over and over again. In fact, he tended to say it at times when the crowd got really big because saying something like that really thinned out the crowd that followed him. Because people were like, I, I can't do that. I'm not willing to pay that price. And so Jesus will not accept being second place in your life. And that might sound cruel, but you were created from the very beginning as a human to find your greatest joy and peace in life and to thrive the most and to have better relationships with others when God comes first in your life. And so really what Jesus is trying to help us do is to put our life in the right order, to put our priorities in the right order. And for this man, the thing that was standing between him and Jesus The thing he loved more than Jesus was his money, his luxury, his status, his stuff, his security, his comfort. And he probably didn't even realize he loved it more than Jesus. He probably didn't even realize he wanted that stuff more than God. He was probably like a lot of us. We're like, oh, yeah, I want God first. I mean, I bet if I asked most Christians, what's number one priority in your life? Most of us would say God because we know we're supposed to. And we kind of think, yeah, sure, I love God the most. But What happened was, Jesus said, okay, then choose. Jesus made him choose between following God and what he really loved, because Jesus knew his heart. And that's what made his heart sink. That's why he walked away sad, because it was in that moment that he realized he loved his stuff more than God, and he realized he wasn't willing to follow God if it meant losing those things that he loved. A part of him wanted Jesus, a part of him knew he needed Jesus, but he wasn't willing to to do what he had to do to follow Jesus and to put Jesus first in his life. And that's the question. That's the equation that we've got to kind of sort through and figure out. Are you willing to actually rearrange your life, to declutter your life, and to say goodbye, to let go of things in your life that are very important to you so that you can have the most important thing that you need the most? A life-saving relationship with Jesus. A thriving relationship with Jesus. A little more uh, succinct way of saying that, the question that we got to wrestle with is, what stands between you and going all in with Jesus? What is it? And you might think, right now, I don't even know, because I really, I, I don't think this guy knew. I think he knew he was rich. I think he knew he enjoyed being rich, but I don't think he knew until that moment when Jesus was put a fork in the road. I don't think he knew which one he loved more. I don't think he knew just how much he loved his stuff. And chances are, you don't know just how much you love the things that are getting in the way of you going all in with Jesus. And so you got to figure it out. What is it? Is it like this guy? Is it the money, the comfort, the stuff? I mean, money's a tough one. It's a, it's a tough one. Because 
you can talk about giving God things like, I'm giving God my trust, I'm giving God, I'm lifting my cares, my concerns, my anxieties to God. But when you talk about giving God your money, you can count that. You can't count your anxieties. You can't count your trust that you're giving to God, but you can count dollars and cents, and those dollars get harder and harder to give away the bigger and bigger that number grows, as if, if it has your heart. There's a reason why Jesus, over the course of his ministry, talked more about money than heaven or hell, because few things can grab onto our hearts like money. It's one of the hardest ones for me, if I'm being honest. Um, and it's not so much the luxury of it. I do love the luxury of it, okay? I love gadgets and gizmos. I love every year when a new phone comes out or a new gizmo that can do, automate something and do something for you that you couldn't do before, you know? Oh, there's a new font this year. Woohoo! Like, like it's, it's dumb. Like, I, I appreciate that side of it, right? But what really gets me about money is the sense of security, have a good emergency fund in the bank. You know, I'm saving for retirement, and I hope that goes well so that when I can't work anymore, that's there. And having the right insurances that you can pay so if something goes horribly wrong, that you're okay and you're secure. And what's been interesting, this year's been really difficult on the old Bliss bank accounts. Uh, we've been paying medical bills from when Abby was in the hospital. Um, we, we got a huge, like, a note yesterday from one of our insurances saying, hey, sorry if it's taking us a while to process this insanely huge claim from the hospital, and they put the dollar amount that you open it. It's one of those where you go, <gasps> like, takes your breath away kind of dollar amounts. And so this year, like, our bank accounts have been getting beat up really, really bad with that and other unexpected expenses that happen, you know. And... Um, as that money gets spent, I start to get a little nervous, and I panic, and I feel insecure, and that anxiety is simply just an alarm bell in my heart saying, hey, where, are, where have you been putting your heart? Where, what have you been placing your trust in, really? And it starts to be revealed. This is, so this money is a really tricky one. This is one of, the, one of the reasons why Abby and I automate our, our giving. Every year in, in January, we look at what we're going to make for the year, and we figure out what percentage of that we want to give to the church. We divide it by 12, and we go to the church's online giving, and we automate it. Because I don't want my anxiety to cause me to rob God so that I can, you know, serve my false God of financial We don't want that to happen. And so we make it happen. We make it automated. So is it money? Does money stand between you and God? Um, is it activity? Are you so busy? that you have absolutely no time for God in your life on a daily basis? You think taking 15, 20 minutes to spend quiet time with God, where would I even get 15 or 20 minutes? Or in a week, oh my gosh, finding time to come to church for an hour? You know what, what could be done on a morning? Or maybe you've had so much else to do that sleeping in is just too enticing on a Sunday morning? To, I mean, it's like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't find time with God. If you're in like the stage of life that I'm in, all that time gets sucked up with kids' activities. There's games, there's concerts, there's programs, there's projects, there's dance classes, there's gymnastics. There's a million different milestones and firsts and lasts along the way that you want to make a big deal of and celebrate. And it takes a lot of time. And if you're not in that stage and you're a grandparent, then it's like, hey, grandparents, you get sucked into all this stuff too, and you get to be busy, uh, even though you already did all this stuff one time around. And, and so we love our kids, and so we say yes to all the things. And because we love our kids, all those things, they feel mandatory. You can't not do them if your kid wants to do them, right? But I think when it leaves absolutely no, no time at all to spend time with God is 
have I gotten things out of whack here? Have I, have I, have I given too much in one direction? Have I really? And, and if you think that, like, to start thinking through, literally, the things you need to clear out of your life to make sure that you have spare room, extra room in your life to devote to God and making him first in your life, that starts to feel impossible. I can't tell my kid they can't play that sport or do that instrument or take these lessons. You start feeling, I can't, how could I, I couldn't do it. It starts to feel impossible. It starts to feel like, hey, go ahead and sell all your stuff. And you start to realize the crossroads that Jesus put this guy at. And, you know, maybe it's not any of that stuff. Maybe you just have the personality where you can't sit still. And you, you can't not have a million projects going and a million plates spinning all the time. And you've just kind of gotten yourself into a place where you can't, there's just too much going on that you can't give God any time, any space in your life. What is it that stands between you and Jesus? Maybe what's between you and God is some anger or hurt that you're holding on to. That's a little less tangible than a calendar, but maybe someone hurt you, and the idea of letting that go feels absolutely unfair. And so you hold on to the bitterness. You hold on to the anger. You maybe even get yourself into a self-pitying sense of victimhood because you were wrong. They did you wrong. They deserve to pay for it. And you get kind of trapped in that bitterness and, and it just kind of imprisons you. And to move forward with Jesus, you have to stop waiting for the universe to balance the scales of justice. And you need to do for them what Jesus did for you and forgive and let it go. But that means a willingness to accept that you have been treated unfairly and that's never going to be made right the way that you want it to be made right. And you just got to let that go. But imagine, imagine the growth that can take place, the transformation that can take place in your heart when you get a small taste of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Imagine the growth that can take place when you start to share the grace with other people that Jesus has lavished on you when he went to the cross. Because how dare you hold on to something when God has already let go of all the wrongs that you've committed against him. It's an amazing place for growth. And so I think for so many Christians, what holds us back from going is not knowledge. or not. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's we're not willing to do what we need to. We're not willing to let God have the number one spot in our hearts. We've allowed other things to take that top spot, and we've called it normal. And we look around at other people's life, and it appears to be normal. And nobody else is whining about it and crying about it or making a fuss about it. Only that preacher's the only one talking about it on Sunday morning. So if I can listen to that one hour a week, and if everybody else is doing what's normal, then fine. We'll just go on letting God be third, fourth, fifth down the list and lying to ourselves and saying God's most important. Because we don't want to do what we're willing to, we're not willing to do what we have to do to put him first. And this, we tell ourselves this lie. It's okay to be busy. It's okay to not have time. I bet a lot of people don't have time. It's okay to be overwhelmed. It's just a season of life. It's normal. It's okay to be angry. A lot of people would be angry the way I'm angry. It's okay. But the truth is, we're just not willing. When the fork in the road is put there, we're not willing to follow the road that goes with Jesus. We aren't willing to let go of some of the, honestly, good things. I'm not saying it's bad. I don't, don't, I'm not saying it's bad for your kids to do the stuff. None of that stuff is bad. Whatever instrument they're playing, it's probably great. I'm sure they're great at it. I'm sure you love your kid banging on the drums all the time in your house. I'll bet it brings you so much sanity and clarity to your life. All those things are great and wonderful and good, right? There's nothing wrong with them. What becomes wrong is when we allow those things to take the place 
in our lives that should be reserved for Jesus. And so sometimes we have to be willing to let good things go, maybe just for a season, so that we have the room and the time and the space and the attention to give Jesus what he deserves. And your problem, again, not ability, not knowledge, it's willingness. My problem, not ability, not knowledge, it's willingness. And if you want the life that Jesus promises, if you want to experience transformation that you never thought possible, if you want to see yourself be led to a life of service and making a difference that you really honestly could never have pictured yourself making that kind of a life, if you want to have a life of peace and joy, then you have to identify what stands between you and Jesus, and you've got to be willing to let it go. You cannot just want it. All of us want it. No, I want to I spend eternity with Jesus. I want to love the way Jesus loves. You do too. I, we all want it. But what we've got to be do, we've got to be willing to pay the cost. And that's so difficult. We've got to be willing to let go of what has taken the number one spot of Jesus so that he can stand on the throne of our lives. Because Jesus will not accept second place. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this story. I have read this story so many times, and I spent a long time thinking, what a fool this guy is, choosing his stuff over Jesus. What a fool this guy is. And it took way too many years before I realized I was the fool in the story. I, I am this guy. And depending on the season of life, the thing that I let become most important changes. The thing that tries to um, take that number one spot. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's activities. Sometimes it's hobbies. Sometimes it's just myself and self-importance and pride and arrogance. But I am this guy. And I let things into my heart and I give them more time and attention and love than I give to you. And I thank you for this story being preserved for thousands of years by multiple people to remind us that every one of us essentially is at a fork in the road. And you will not accept second place, but you demand us to put you first and all th above all things. And that actually our life starts to make sense and it becomes better when we do that. And all the things that we're afraid to lose, once, once we're putting you first and we start experiencing the maturity and transformation that you want to bring us through your spirit, we're not even going to miss the things we've left behind. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to see that our problem is not knowledge, it's not ability, but it's willingness. And I pray that you would help us to do the, the work of, of sitting down and thinking, okay, what's the thing that's on the other side of that choice that I have a hard time letting go of? Maybe it is money, maybe it's stuff, maybe it's time, maybe it's a calendar issue. I don't know what it is, but I pray that you would give us all the, the time and the conviction to spend some time thinking what is it that stands on the other side of that crossroad that I am tempted to say no to Jesus so I can keep these other things in my life? And let that be a warning to us that our hearts have been given too much to the wrong thing so that we can make a correction, so that we can make a hard choice, so that we can actually be willing to let those things go and trust you and explore a life with you that is so much more rich and beautiful than anything we could find when we hold on to the things that we think we need. So help us be people who are willing, change our hearts, give us the ability to make the tough choices so that we can have what we need the most in our life, and that is you, Jesus. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen.